This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in North Carolina. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 Hi, everyone. It's Amelia. Thanks so much for listening to the 50 Feminist States podcast. This week, we're back in North Carolina for the second of three special episodes featuring Northeastern North Carolina. This week, we'll be hearing from my friend Ashley Bryant Phillips, who introduced me to all the women that I spoke to in this area and to whom I am very much indebted for these exciting episodes. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to let you know that 50 Feminist States is currently crowdfunding to raise money for future seasons. So if you've ever enjoyed an episode of the podcast, please head to 50 Feminist states.com slash support and donate any amount that you can to our Kickstarter campaign. Your support of that campaign helps promote stories like this being told. We heard last week from Caroline and Danielle how overlooked their communities and the women in their communities particularly feel and are. And a podcast like this is really working so hard to make sure that the people doing the work, the hyper-local work, the important work that has direct impact are being featured. So if you go to 50feministstates.com slash support, you'll be supporting those stories and helping more people hear them. Of course, it's a Kickstarter campaign and there are also fancy rewards like stationary sets and fanny packs and scarves and all sorts of things you could want. So pledges at those amounts are especially appreciated. Again, that's 50feministstates.com slash support, or you can go on Kickstarter and search 50 Feminist States Future Seasons. For this week's episode, I headed to Woodland, North Carolina, where my friend Ashley lives to talk to her about what it was like to grow up there as well as to leave for college and then to return and live there as an adult. And we go really deep on these conversations about what it's like to be raised in the rural U.S., particularly this area of northeastern North Carolina, and then what it's like to return as an adult who's gone to college and been versed in these kind of larger, more urban social justice narratives and is trying to bring them back to such a small place. To give you a little perspective on Woodland, Woodland is a town with a population of about 800 people and 28.1% of those live below the poverty line. The town itself has a total area of 1.3 square miles, and it's in the northeastern part of North Carolina in Northampton County. One of the things I think it's important to say about Northampton County, and is also true of Bertie County and Hertford Counties, which we talked about last week, is that all of these counties are historically Democratic and voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election, which is not true of the majority of counties in North Carolina. And I think that it's important to reflect on that, considering the ways so many narratives that I hear about rural communities in the South is that they're so conservative, they're steeped in these conservative politics. And while there may be some truth or a lot of truth in that, these spaces that we're talking about right now are some of the democratic strongholds in this part of the country. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm excited to bring more attention to them and to the people that live there and that care so much about their communities there. So Ashley grew up in Woodland. We're going to hear more about 
her experience going to college and then why she ended up back there in the past few years. I've been to visit her in Woodland a number of times. I am so appreciative of this community, her community there, and so honored to share her voice on the podcast, let you hear about her experiences living there, as well as the writing that she does, the creative writing about her community and the people that she knows and loves. So I'll let Ashley introduce herself, tell you a little bit about where we recorded this interview in Woodland, and then reflect on what it was like to leave, go to her what she calls second world, and then come back to this first world that she grew up in. Here's Ashley now. My name is Ashley Bryant Phillips. I'm from Woodland, North Carolina. Okay, so we're on Chestnut Street now, and I grew up on Hemlock Street. All of the streets are named after trees in Woodland. And the house that I grew up in is like two blocks from here. It's cool. And then um, two houses down from this towards Main Street. My great-grandparents lived in that house briefly. So my granddaddy, who I was really close to, and all his siblings... They lived in that house, which is kind of cool, knowing that I'm on the same street. Whenever I was little and we would pass the water tower, which the water tower is like a stone's throw away, you could see it. He would tell me and my sister how he would climb the water tower. And so when I got old enough, I climbed the water tower. So the water tower's right there. Um, I was really into climbing trees. I was a tree climber. We lived on a dead-end road on Hemlock Street, so there were fields behind us and fields beside us, so I really enjoyed that. Right now, I have houses all around me, and I don't really like that, but with the fields, you know, you could go back during the day and find paths and tadpole holes and all sorts of stuff, turtles... And then whenever I got old enough, we got a go-kart and daddy cut like a path through the woods for the go-kart, but it was only big enough for like one person. So me and my sister had to like take turns. That was a big deal, riding the go-kart. We learned how to, we rode our bikes a lot. I guess growing up here was, I had a really happy childhood, so it was really nice And we didn't, I didn't really know a stranger. You know, it was like the person who walked on the side of the road and was a little bit, you know, unhinged. That was just the town's unhinged person, you know. No need to be afraid of them or anything. And then, like, the other person who always wore a police suit but wasn't a policeman, like, that was just darnell actually it wasn't a police suit i think it was a fireman suit anyway it's like all of the people all of the weird things you don't see them as weird you just see them as like the people that they are because at the end of the day it's like somebody's cousin or somebody's sister or you know they they go to your church or you, you know them somehow I never analyzed or thought about really how I grew up and where I was from until I went to school because um, no one really leaves here. So 
the knowledge of, of a world outside of this is, is skewed. And if you don't know any other world, then there's like, there's nothing else to compare it to. Like, I, I remember when I went to college and I started to try to figure out, like, how, how would I phrase this to my family? How would I try to explain this to my family? This difference, this feeling of like these two worlds. Cause it was really, it was really frustrating knowing that there was so much I was seeing and so much that I was doing that like they weren't ever going to see, weren't ever going to do. And I was so excited about it. But how could I come home and, and share that excitement and translate it in a way that they would understand and not only understand, but like first, like it had to break through the barrier of like, uh, I didn't want my family to feel like I was talking down to them because I was having all these experiences away in a place that they never went to. Um, I didn't want it to come off as being like, I'm better than them, which is like, I guess that is like the stereotype. And I guess it is a thing that happens, you know, when you leave the small town, everybody back in the town is like, oh, that person thinks they're better than all of us. I didn't want that at all because I loved my family and I and I knew that they would love all of what I wanted to share with them too, but I couldn't. It was sad whenever I would come home and try to tell them something about it and it's like they just didn't get it. And it definitely led to my family feeling like Ashley's a totally different person. Whereas I felt like I'm becoming my own person, you know, experiencing all these things I want to do. But I'm trying to get back to the point of when I was trying to figure out, like, how would I just, how would, how would I describe, like, what it's like not knowing of any other world than this one, like, growing up here. Like, when you never had chocolate before, you don't crave it. So I didn't know of things. I didn't know of a lot of things. Um, falafel. Uh, I, I think I talk about food a lot. I guess it's because it's the easiest thing to relate to. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about falafel or, um, or I, this is kind of silly, but when our freshman orientation group was meeting in college and we walked across the street from Meredith to go to the Ben and Jerry's, there's that crosswalk there and you have to press the button on the crosswalk. Right. And like, that was totally new to me. All that was new to me. Well, this crosswalk, it had like the, that really high pitched sound. And, you know, I said, wow, what, what the, what kind of bird is that? You know, and, and everyone kind of like, you know, laughed. And I guess that's when I kind of like realized that like who I was and like that part of me of not having access to what the greater world had could be used as like comedic relief. I guess, or not even comedic relief, but like a point of interest. And so it did make things a lot e easier. Some people, I feel like, uh, don't embrace where they're from. You know, you go to this big liberal arts school or whatever, and they're telling you that, you know, the way your parents taught you was wrong. You don't want to hear that. But at the same time, like, it is really enlightening. <laughs> And so then you're like, well, hell, like, how can I ever go back there? How can my parents ever be right? How can I ever talk to them about anything? And so 
everyone or not everyone. So you decide like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk like that. I, I'm just gonna leave that identity behind and become this new new person. I feel like you can choose to do that or you can do what I did and I instead for some reason I don't know why I was like I'm going to fight for it to keep it. And I think that did help me because so many people like at that age in college, they like are struggling for identity. And here I had this thing that I could go ahead and just like present like this is where I'm from and I'm only now realizing it talking to you right now. And it's coming to me right now because I, I see uh, a lot of people on social media nowadays. It's it's very trendy to be of a place, particularly of uh, rural places, in my opinion. I really love how Ashley was able to reflect here on the ways in which those sorts of uncomfortable and even embarrassing experiences of difference can be harnessed into a deep reserve and resource of identity, strength, and power that comes from being so embedded in the specific place where you're from. This is definitely something that I've always admired in her creative work. Hear her talk a little bit more about how where she's from has impacted her writing now. I write about what I know and where I'm from and stuff. So, of course, like on the first page, ain't is going to be there three times because that's how people talk. That's how people really talk. And the professor was like, if you ever want to get this published, you have to address this. It's not going to get published. Um, And then everyone kind of talked about my work in this like greater Southern literature framework. You know, I had only read, like, one Eudora Welty story in college, in undergrad. One Flannery O'Connor story. I had never read Carson McCullers. And, like, I turn in my story and everybody is putting it into the... Because it's the only thing they know of, like... And I just... I wish I could have been seen for... It could have been seen for what it was. Anyway, you know, that was enough. For me to realize that, um, yeah, like, our greater world doesn't give a fuck about poor people and poor people don't have a voice. And that for so long, our literature and our writing world has been um, ruled by money. I mean, everything's ruled by money, but you would think in a world where... We accept things like outsider art. You know, I'm I'm really interested in outsider art. Uh, say this this woman Annie Annie Hopper that I'm really interested in. She lived in Buxton, North Carolina, and she suffered a series of depressions. Um, she had severe separation anxiety from her only son and her husband. Anyway, she created little uh, statues made out of angels and prophets and stuff. And she put them in her house. And she made them out of anything she could find. Driftwood, seashells, mud, what the hell ever. She wrote poems. They're beautiful. 
Um, she didn't go to sc- she didn't go to school for that, and that's real and that's true. Things are misspelled in it. I mean, if it was you know sent to an MFA workshop, it get torn all to hell. But that's what's real. So I guess what I'm saying is like. In our visual art world, if we can accept outsider art, why can't we accept outsider art in uh, the writing world? I think it's high time for the front of, just list any of your favorite magazines, Paris Review, uh, Oxford American, Atlantic, all these places. Like What we need to be hearing are the voices of the people who have not been like had the opportunity to give their voice because everything's fucking regulated by like like in order so we have Casey Lehman right he just released his um autobiography i think it's called heavy he had to go i think he went to like Oberlin and he's a black kid from Georgia but he had to go to Oberlin in order to be heard that's not right and I'm so, it's just, it's really boring right now, the the literature landscape that we have, because I feel that so much of it is uh, another, another story from a middle class, you know, like, comfy, whatever. And we need to be giving voice to the people who have the real stories that we need to hear. I mean, nothing's going to change if we just keep turning out the same shit. I don't think that writing is something that you are influenced by. I think it's something that comes from within. So if you happen to have those those people inside you that need to be on the page, then, then sure. But I don't think I don't think writing is this prescriptive like formula like this is this is follow these rules. Uh yeah, just like I'll bring up Annie, Annie Hooper again, you know, like everything she did came from an urge within. I think that's what writing is too. Ashley's call for new aesthetic orientations toward the voices of marginalized folks, including poor people, including these sorts of narratives about class is so powerful and always really makes me stop and reflect on the ways in which I see class represented in the various media that I take in. Since she mentioned Annie Hooper twice at this point, I asked if she could share a little bit more about how she learned about Annie Hooper's work and how it's influenced some of her own work. So after my MFA program, I moved back to Woodland because um, my daddy was sick and I wanted to be with him during his last months of life. When I came home and so many people back in my like writing circles were like, oh my God, this is your great, like, period. This is when you're going to go home and you're going to write your great American novel. You're going to have all this time. And that did, I just, it couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I, I only could do what I felt like I could do. And, and I was terrified to move back. Because of the disconnect that I started to tell you about in the beginning when I first went to college. I mean, it just continued to grow. I mean, the farther away I was at home and the more I learned, the farther it took me away from being able to communicate with my family. 
about the things that I was really excited about. Um, that's, that's how I felt. And also, so not only is there like this, I guess, I don't want to say intellectual isolation. I feel like that's too harsh of a word, but so there was whatever that kind of isolation is that was going on. And then the physical isolation, like Woodland is really far from kind of like everything. Raleigh is like the nearest big city. That's like two hours. And so I knew that by choosing to go home, be with daddy, I would be, well, I'll just say intellectually isolated, artistically isolated. And I mean artistically in the fact that people actually declare themselves as artists. Because I think there are a lot of people who don't even know that they're artists and they are. Annie Hooper, I don't think she knew that she was an artist until someone told her she was. She was just doing something because she had to. With all that said, I was living here alone by myself, terrified, and I, like, read a lot. The computer was my best friend. And I guess I just Googled North Carolina outsider artist. And she came up, and it really spoke to me seeing these images, these these photographs taken in her house in like the seventies where you just like open up, open up the living room door and you can't even walk on the floor. Cause there's all these little tiny, you know, misshapen angel figures made out of driftwood and mud and seashells and stuff. And something about seeing all of that abundance, probably because I was lonely. It made me, it made me feel really good. And I, and I liked, I liked looking at her stuff. So that's, that's how I found her. And NC State has like some of her pieces, but they're not like on display. I've called and they're like, if you want to see them, we'll give you a special, you know, exhibit tour, whatever. But yeah, while I was doing, while I was like getting really into her, um, I was reaching out to my friends and I was trying to think of like, what can I do here to keep me going? So uh, one night I reached out and, and I was like, who wants to work on a music project with me? <laughs> you know, I had no idea what the hell that would mean. And my friend um, Sam Lydig in Chapel Hill, who's who does SMLH, um, he was the first to respond. I was very active on social media then. I was glued to my phone. If if I hadn't had Wi-Fi, I I probably would have lost my mind living here. But anyway, posted on social media. Who wants to do a music project? Samuel Ida was like, I do. And then he was like, What do you have in mind? And I just sent him the picture of Annie Hooper's living room. I was like, This is what I want to work on. Like, I don't know how we can do this, but this is what I want to do. So, um, we came up with this, uh, plan that every week I would write something, send it to him, and he would interpret it into sound. And we didn't really know, like, how long that would go on or what that would end up meaning or doing. I just wanted something to turn in every week. I wanted to be held accountable. I wanted something to look forward to and know that I was building towards something. 
And I also wanted to explore Annie Hooper more. So we ended up like making like a, it's a cool thing. I think it's pretty cool. There's my words and his signs and we're like putting them together. And I think in total, it'll be like 30 minutes of me like basically, um, I, these, I heard these people in my head. It was this family in my head inspired by Annie and her work and stuff. And they were just like talking to me. So basically all I was doing is just writing down what they were saying. So Sam put music to that. I mean, I don't know, like, if Annie would even really like it, but her work really, when I, when I saw it, and it just, it it really hit me. Um, and and her poems are really sweet too. Like they they rhyme, you know, in an old school way, but they're really dark. They're about like uh, wanting to be with the angels and can't wait for death so I can see you again blah 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 like she misses her husband she talks about like just seeing his glasses on the table makes her want to like fall to pieces and cry it's really sweet so that's how I found Annie Hooper and that's what I ended up doing with Annie Hooper I'll put a link to the piece that Ashley and Sam collaborated on inspired by Annie Hooper in the show notes. But thinking more about how place and the experience of where you live both shapes what you have access to and the creative work you do or might create, I asked Ashley a little bit more about Woodland and if she could name some of the characteristics that come to mind if she were to describe the people that live in her community. Real, caring, and uh, I want to say, well, caring and kind are kind of the same thing. And I don't want to say like persistent because they don't know anything else other than to be persistent. So it's not like they're choosing to be persistent. It's just that that's the way of life. I mean, if, if an outsider were to sit down and look at their life, they might say, wow, this, this person's had a lot of hardship. This person had to overcome a lot. They're very brave. They're very resilient. I don't think they would, they would never see it that way because their parents were like that, you know? And, and, and so there's, there's that. I I don't know what word is like resilient, but not knowing you're resilient, unaware of your resilience. For example, the other day we went to eat in Rich Square which is right next to Woodland. And we were eating breakfast, and this elderly, elderly pair of older black men were sitting next to us. And one of them, his, his hand was so knotted up from arthritis. But, I mean, you could tell they were regulars because they were just like, they were cutting up with the waitress, and they were just, they were having the best time. Well, you know, I went up to go use the bathroom, whatever. When I came back, they were talking to Joey and they were asking him where he was from and he told him California and they were so concerned about the fires they chit-chatted with him and they didn't it's like they didn't care that he was this funny looking white kid with a mustache they just wanted to talk to him get to know him 
They told us that they were from Scotland Neck, which is a town on the other side of Rich Square. But they were like, we come in here all the time and we just had never seen y'all and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, got time to leave and one of the old men picks the ticket out of Joey's hand and both me and Joey are like, no, sir, like we're going to pay for this. Like y'all aren't going to pay for this. And the old man said, yes, I am. I, I want to pay for y'all's, y'all's breakfast. And then like the waitress that they were cutting up with the whole time, she came by and she was like, just let them do it. They think it's going to get them into heaven. And that's not the first, like that, that's like not unheard of, you know, it's just like, I heard it said around here. I mean, it is a big belief around here. I mean, people say it that like the people who have the least give the most. I do believe that's true. Everyone here is concerned about each other in one way or the other. And like, they they are really caring and invested and kind. People here just want every, you know, just want everybody to feel comfortable and to feel at home. But yeah, I would say like moving back home has given me opportunities like that. Because there is a huge disconnect between the way people think here and the way people think on the outside. Like, I always refer to, like, when I go to college, like, that was my second world. So, the second world. And I feel like I'm kind of, like, in a place where I can kind of, like, be the go-between. And, like, sometimes I tell my really conservative folks that I work with things they've never even heard of, aren't even aware of. But it helps them understand, like, why people are protesting like they are. Without me saying that and without me being there to offer that, they would just keep assuming that maybe the world was really going to hell and that, you know, things are really, 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 really shitty. Which things are really shitty. But I like being there to when I can to to kind of bring in a little knowledge. Something that really resonated with me and what Ashley said here was this kind of common phrase she mentioned that the people who have the least give the most. And I thought about this so much, not only in relation to the example she gives about these two men buying breakfast for her and her partner, but also in relation to how we share knowledge and in what we share with each other. And I think about her reflecting on, you know, trying to share the knowledge that she's gained by going to college and getting a graduate degree with the people around her and the kind of empathy it takes to recognize how we can better share that knowledge among people, including rural communities and including the people directly around us. I can think about this a lot in relation to what we heard from Caroline last week about the goals of Cultivator and then just spreading literacy and hoping that by spreading literacy, you spread ideas and you spread knowledge and you spread awareness that then helps spread the sorts of caring and deep connection that Ashley talks about finding in her community. For one of my last questions, I asked if she could reflect on some of the misconceptions that she sees in the communities that she engaged with in college and in graduate school, the misconceptions that those people have of people from rural communities like Woodland. So hear her talk a little bit about the ways in which the folks in her second world, that urban world, misconceive of the people that she grew up with. I can only speak for my community, and I can say that in Woodland, which is in the South, I didn't, I didn't grow up going to any Klan rallies. 
I haven't found any uh, clan robes in any of my family members' things that have passed away. I think, well, I mean, there's the big misconception that, like, people in rural communities are ignorant. I don't think that people in, like, my second world understand how fucking limited resources are. How growing up here, it took me two hours to get to a mall. Two hours to get to the nearest bookstore. I didn't have a drama class. I didn't have music class. The swimming pool in our town didn't have a diving board until I was like 12 or 13. And how can you expect, how can you expect anybody growing up under those sorts of circumstances to kind of like compete um, at your level? Um, obviously, they can't, so you just call them dumb, rather than you would know, like, if you're in a classroom, in your second world, and there's the kid in there who doesn't have as much at home or whatever, like, you know, you would know, like, he needs to be, he needs to be given, like, these special tools, or whatever. The tools are there for people to succeed in the second world that aren't available to uh, poor people in in the first world. In my first world, I feel I feel like uh, that that's something people don't understand, and that's why it enrages me so much when I see people from the second world trying to represent people from that first world. Because they have no idea what it's like to grow up, like, somewhere where you, like, lose cell phone reception just, like, you know, or, or not being able to have access to Wi-Fi. Mental health resources are super shitty here, too. And now that I'm an adult and have lived here again, I can kind of see how I feel like there's a lot of uh, depression but obviously they wouldn't see it and they can't identify as that because they, they don't know any other life. But how can it not be depression when the culture that you're ingesting every day from the television isn't representing you at all? Um, I mean, at my work, like we give insurance to um, farmers. That's like our biggest clients are farmers. As of 2008, only 2% of the population was employed by agriculture who the hell knows what the numbers are now but this area here is still very much um rooted in agriculture and will be for the foreseeable future where is that represented in our culture it's represented in bullshit country music written by people who didn't grow up on farms it's it's become a joke anyway so that's why country music sucks <laughs> Because, like, nobody, you know, no, nobody's really, really growing up on that red dirt road or what's, what's some other songs? I don't know. So, yeah, I wish, I wish people from the outside world would, would know about the lack of resources. And I do believe if we did have the same resources, I believe it would be the greatest artistic renaissance. I mean, 
I can't imagine what art would come from places like Woodland. Like if I were to give somebody who lived like in the Airhead Trailer Park this system that we're recording this on right now and asked him to just have it for a week and talk to the people he knew and the people he loved, that would be better than anything else we'd heard. And that's that's what I believe. But because people on the outside don't see that, it's like you don't think about it, I guess. And it's fucked up because, like, we don't see ourselves represented in the greater American culture other than, like, in jokes. I'm trying to think of... Well, Dolly Parton is the saving grace. <laughs> uh, but I think... I mean, I really... I really think it's high fucking time for us to start caring about rule... Like, the greater country to start caring about, like, rule people poor people and what they have to say why why can't why can't we offer them spaces to be to be heard and be welcoming to them like something that i think about a lot is when i go to the grocery store here i'm just surrounded by people who love and want to be loved and would love me and would help me if i needed it and I know that either person on either side of me in the grocery line, they would love to hear about what I love. And I would love to hear about what they love. And we would be there for each other. And I don't feel that when I'm in the Trader Joe's and or when I'm in the Whole Foods. And maybe that is just my own, like, I, I feel really uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable in places of privilege. So maybe that's, like, my own thing. And maybe somebody would who's at Whole Foods might feel uncomfortable standing in between those same two people I would want to love to talk to in my food line. <laughs> um, I feel like part of why we're here in our country right now is because of that. I mean, I know it is. I thought that this anecdote Ashley shared about the grocery store and the difference between the food lion close to where she lives and Trader Joe's or Whole Foods was particularly apt and really had me thinking about the difference between what it feels like to go to a grocery store where I live in Chicago and feel like I would never speak to the people around me, but maybe they shared similar political leanings to me or similar kind of discourses about the world and how different that is than going to a smaller grocery store where I actually have no idea if people have the same political leanings or world discourses, but I would trust that they would drop everything and listen to and take care of me if I needed that. I don't feel that way at my Trader Joe's or Whole Foods either. And I can definitely appreciate Ashley's kind of recognition that maybe that's, that's personal and that has to do with us. But I, I do start to wonder about the different sorts of communities that are created in those spaces. And maybe if she isn't onto something about the close-knit nature of her community and the difference between just sharing, you know, political leanings and actually sharing lives together. Here, Ashley share a few final words about the people in her community and her relationships with them. So one of my dreams was to 
teach like creative writing um here or you know just teach some sort of class here and to pair each one of my students up with a pen pal in the city and to have them write to each other every day and that would start some sort of communication to get those two worlds talking and and to get those misconceptions broken down hopefully it still can happen but i i I think another misconception is that in our country we prize education so much we think education is enlightenment um education is only enlightenment for those that can't afford it who have been brought up in a caring enough environment or who have some by the grace of God, some crazy f- internal fire in them to just from the fucking start to just really, really get whatever the hell they want. I mean, if we, it's nice to sit around and talk about things all day long. It is. It's fun to sit around and talk about movies and music, Chinese food. Uh, it's nice to sit around and talk about cultural things. But something that happens a lot here in in woodland is people just talk about what really matters and that's like family and what is immediately happening like around you that's a gift and it's something that I've had to learn because like when I was back in my second world to connect with somebody you know if you're in like your safe liberal space of your MFA world you can go in there and like talk shit about Trump all day long you can go in and like talk about Pedro Moldovar's latest film. You can go in there and talk about Alice Monroe, blah, 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 blah. I'm in my safe space. Here, you don't talk about those things. Like I said, you talk you talk about um, something that everybody has in common is like where they go to church. There's a lot of church talk, a lot of community talk or the fire department or big news here is that our water bill just got raised by like 20 cent which is kind of a lot but that's something that's happening like immediately around us I think another thing that happens in the second world is that we're so connected on the internet with our social medias to like cutesy fashion designers in Japan or like shit that's going on in Brazil or like and all those things are like fun and and wonderful and amazing and like your friends that you have that are living in Australia and petting koalas that's that's fantastic but at the end of the day I mean none of those people that you're seeing on that screen are like sitting right in fucking fucking front of you like what can you actually do to like reach out and you can't touch those things here a lot of a lot of the language is is focused on um <laughs> well for example here's here's one like yesterday i told my um secretary at my work something and i'm a hugger like i'm fine with getting hugged and she just like hugged me out of out of nowhere cuz she was just so excited over some news i had told her because she was so happy for me it's like everyone's connected here and and I and I do think that comes from the like I mentioned before the resiliency but not knowing this resiliency um here's another thing about people around here talking about work men don't really wear 
wedding rings. All the men in my family didn't really wear wedding rings. And that's because everyone works with their hands. And if you're wearing a wet wedding ring and you're working on a piece of equipment, your finger might get cut off. So from an early age, I knew when I saw a man with a wedding ring on that he was like fancy. That he had a job at a desk where he didn't have to like work. Men also don't drink out of straws here. <laughs> um, which is funny because when I brought one of my first boyfriends back here, I was like, don't, don't drink out of the straw. <laughs> Thanks so much to Ashley for being on the 50 Feminist States podcast, for sharing her perspectives about the differences between growing up and living again in Woodland and the more urban city she's lived in in North Carolina. Her call that we listen to more voices from these rural areas and don't require them to move into urban spaces or translate themselves into socially accepted creative writing programs to be heard is so aligned with the mission of this podcast and the work that 50 Feminist States is trying to do. So thanks to Ashley for articulating that in new and different ways that really made me and I hope all of you listening to reflect on class and on privilege of living in urban spaces and resources rich spaces as well. If you want to support more stories like this and hearing more stories like this, please go to 50feministstates.com slash support and donate to our Kickstarter campaign. It will end on June 6th. So please pledge your donations before then. We are so appreciative of your support and so appreciative of you listening to these stories coming out of Northeastern North Carolina. Next week, we've got one more episode from this area. We're going to talk to three women who organized to make make sure that a coal ash plant did not come to and pollute their community. It's a really amazing conversation about the true power of grassroots organizers, as well as what these women tell me is one of the first instances of interracial organizing, interracial grassroots organizing that they can remember in their community. So I am so excited to share that story with you. I hope that you'll tune back in next week. And that in the meantime, you'll head to 50feministstates.com slash support and pledge to support future seasons of 50 Feminist States today. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to Ashley for sharing her stories. There are links to her creative writing in the show notes, as well as some of the other things that she mentioned in this episode. Until next week, I'll see y'all on the road. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.